Um, if you have a Bible, now would be the best time to open it to the book of Jeremiah. And we're going to read chapter 2, only one verse, chapter 13. Then we will read from Ezekiel, and then from Colossians, and then from 1 John. Hear now the word of the Lord. I'll begin in verse 12. may not be on the overhead, but just listen. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken sisters, cisterns, that can hold no water. Now turn please to Ezekiel. Just take a right. Not very far over. And today we're looking at chapter 14. By the way, I'll be so glad when this sermon is over. I don't think I've ever been so convicted about idolatry in my life as I have been this past week. The stupid thing we pastors do is we think we can explain something, we no longer do it. But the fact is, just because you can explain what it is doesn't mean that you've overcome it. Chapter 14, Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before my face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. Now let's turn in the New Testament to the book of Colossians. I used to have a Bible teacher who would tell you uh, ease through Ephesians, carouse through Colossians, or flip through Philippians, and carouse in Colossians. So we're in Colossians, and we're in uh, chapter 3 and verse 5. Put to that death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the count, account of these things, or these, the wrath of God is coming. And finally, to the book of 1 John.
And the last verse of 1 John in chapter 5, verse 21. Martin Lloyd-Jones made a rather remarkable statement about this verse. It is very possible that more than likely 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written after the book of Revelation, so in reality, this is the last verse in the Bible. Think about that when I read it, because it almost seems uh, uh, a non sequitur to read this at this point if you've read the whole book of 1st John, but look at what it says. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we're doing a series on gospel renewal, and one of the important things to learn when we talk about the gospel is what has often been referred to as the third way of the gospel, the tertium quid, or third way of the gospel. Religion is not the gospel, by the way. Religion says, if I obey, I will be accepted. In other words, I have a quid pro quo transactional relationship with God. And if I do what he commands, obedience brings blessing. Therefore, if I obey, I will be blessed, my life will go well, and in the end, I will be saved by being a good person, maybe even a flawed person, maybe even admit I'm sinful, but at heart, I've done my best, and God makes up the difference and gives me his salvation. That is wrong. Number two is irreligion. I don't really have to obey anybody but myself. While the first one is legalism, the second one is ultra-license. It is, I am the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my soul. I decide what's right for me. I decide what's true for me. Who are you? Who in the world are you to try and tell me what I should believe and what I know? So that's the second way which is also really bad. And the third way is the gospel. Since I have been accepted upon the basis of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I obey. Obedience comes out of faith. We'll see that in Romans when we get there. But obedience flows from faith, the obedience that is driven by right and biblical motives. And so those are the three ways. And the third way is the one we're talking about today. But I remember about 25 years ago, I was taking a doctor of ministry course in Orlando at Reform Seminary, and the teachers were Tim uh, Keller and Ed Clowney. And it was an amazing class, a very good class. But it wasn't in that class that I heard what I'm about to tell you. Uh, Keller actually spoke at a church on a Friday night, and so, you know, we'd had him all morning, and we're kind of tired of him, but we went to church anyway, you know. And he preached a message on idolatry that literally grabbed me around the throat and threw me to the floor. I mean, it was a gospel breakthrough. It was something that 
all along I had been all around it. But you know how it is when you never really see it, then you see it. And then you see everything else in relation to it. And it was sort of the, uh, the key that unlocked for me uh, the nature of my relationship with God, especially in relation to sanctification. And so theologians forever have been reading through the Bible looking for some sort of unifying theme to the uh, scriptures. And there are many. Many have recommended the theme covenant. Others have recommended the theme kingdom. But in simply uh, ascribing one theme as sort of the overarching meta-narrative, the overarching architectonic rubric through which we understand everything else in the Bible, uh, that would be reductionism, uh, making it just one thing. The Bible is incredibly complicated. However, one of the main ways to read the Bible is the ages-long struggle between true faith, that is fidelity, and idolatry, which is infidelity. When you hear the word idolatry, you should be thinking of spiritual adultery. In the beginning, human beings were made in the image of God. Theologians call it the Imago Dei. And because we were made in his image, uh, one of the aspects of the image of God in man is a desire to worship and serve. We are worshiping creatures. I'm going to use something that would make my English teacher turn over in her grave because I'm sure she's dead. She must be 150 by now. <laughs> but, but my teacher once told me, never use a double negative. I said, well, Paul does often in the Scripture, in Greek. So I'm being Pauline today. You cannot not worship. You are a worshiping being. You're going to worship somebody or something and you're gonna serve somebody or something it is uh, at the core of our heart and our being we were made to worship God and to rule over all created things in God's name Paul understands humanity's original sin as an act of idolatry they exchanged the glory of the immortal God and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. So let's get to the bottom here really quick on one thing. We are natural born worshipers. We can't stop. We know that we are dependent on things outside of us. None of us, if we're really honest, know that we are sufficient in ourselves for every situation and everything. And so we have to look for some kind of connection to something that can deliver us or save us or protect us or give us hope or give us life or give us peace. That's the kind of creatures we are. Uh, to, to see it any other way is denial. You know, that big river in Egypt. Denial. We deny reality. And so we are creatures who worship. We are creatures who serve. But instead of living for God, we began to live for ourselves and for our work or our material goods, and we inverse, or reversed the intended order. And we began to worship 
and serve created things, paradoxically, the created things came to rule over us. One of the quickest ways to get into bondage, that is misery, is to worship something other than the triune living God revealed to us through the person of Christ. You want to be miserable, you want to sign up for a life of utter sadness, anxiety, fear, every negative emotion you can think of, simply worship creation more than you worship God. Ignore God. It's kind of like ignoring the law of gravity. Suppose you climb to the top of the strap. That tower, I understand, is 110 stories high, and you say to me, Pastor Tim, I don't believe in gravity. And I would say, well, you're soon to find out it's real. You take a leap, and you don't have a bungee cord attached. And you what? You don't fall up <laughs> like a rock. You fall down, and it destroys you. You can no more worship created things and experience life and hope and peace than you can jump off a building and fall up. We're wired that way. We're hardwired that way. It's in our spiritual DNA, so to speak, as it were, in case some of you want to press me, but not impress me. Instead of being God's vice regents ruling over creation, creation now masters us. We are subject to decay and disease and disaster, and the final proof of this is death itself. We live for our own glory by toiling in the dust, but eventually we return to the dust, and the dust wins. George Bernard Shaw, the only thing I think he ever said I agreed with is this. The statistics on death are impressive. One out of every one person dies. We live to make a name for ourselves, but then our names are forgotten. Read Tower of Babel in the book of Ecclesiastes. I was once preaching a series through the book of Ecclesiastes, and the congregation came to me in a very loving but firm way and said, Stop it. We can't stand it anymore. It's so depressing. I said, I must be doing something wrong. And uh, I'm sure I was. But in the beginning of the Bible, we learned that idolatry means slavery and death. And so idolatry is a real snare for us. Huge chunks of Scripture in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, talk about our characteristic drift from God by embracing other gods. None of you have probably ever, maybe you have, been to a pagan temple and bowed down to a god of stone. Maybe you have. But very few of you, I would say, uh, but that doesn't mean you're not an idolater. Not at all. Because it's a spiritual thing. It's not simply external behavior. It's idols of the heart. The deepest part of us. The Ten Commandments, which we read this morning, which is wonderful. The first two, and most basic, which are one-fifth of God's law to humanity, are against idolatry. Exodus doesn't envision 
any third option between true faith and idolatry. We will either worship the uncreated God or we will worship some created thing. There is no possibility of worshiping nothing. We can't stop it. We can't help ourselves. Let me repeat that. We will either worship the uncreated God or we will worship some created thing, an idol. There is no possibility of our worshiping nothing. The classic New Testament text is Romans 1, 18-25, and we'll look at this in more detail later. But this passage on idolatry is often seen as only referring to pagan Gentiles. But instead, we should recognize it as an analysis of what sin is and how it works in us. Verse 25 tells us, The strategy for control, taking created things and setting our hearts on them and building our lives around them, since we need to worship something because of how we are created, we cannot eliminate God without creating God substitutes. And there are two results of idolatry. First, we are deceived. When you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. (laughs) You don't know you don't know. Their thinking became futile, and their hearts were darkened. There is a blindness uh, when we are worshiping functional little g-gods. And then slavery, bondage, they worshiped and served. Whatever we worship, we will serve. For worship and service are always inextricably bound together. We are covenantal beings. We enter into covenant service with whatever most captures our imagination and hearts. And that worship ensnares us if it's not the living God. So every human personality, community, thought form, culture will be based on some ultimate concern or some ultimate allegiance either to God or some God substitute. Individually, we will ultimately look either to God or to success romance, family, status, popularity, beauty, or something else to make us feel personally significant and secure that is righteous. Because we so hunger for righteous. Culturally, we either look to God or the free market or the state or the elites or the will of the people or science and technology, military might, human reason, racial pride, or something else to make us corporately significant and secure and to guide our choices. No one grasps this more in the early stages of the Reformation than Martin Luther, who ties the Old Testament and the New Testament together rather remarkably in his exposition of the Ten Commandments. Luther saw how the Old Testament uh, law against idols and the New Testament emphasis on justification by faith alone are essentially the same. Now, if you've listened to the other three messages before this one, this will make sense to you. Let me try to explain it. Luther saw how the Old Testament law against idols and the New Testament emphasis on justification by faith alone, through grace, grace alone, and Christ alone uh, are essentially the same thing. That is, we enter into, and we can't help it. This is how we're made. This is what we do. We enter into a covenantal relationship with an idol, 
And we say to that idol, if I could just have you, then my life would have meaning. If I could just have you, then I would experience fulfillment. I would uh, actualize myself to the highest kind of being on earth. I would, uh, I would be uh, almost supernatural. If I could just have this thing you represent, then my life would have meaning and I wouldn't want to kill myself every other day. If I could just have it. But our idols become for us a covenantal master that oppresses us, that makes all kinds of promises, promises to us, but never delivers on any. It's like cotton candy. When I, I told you this before. When I was a little boy, the carnival would come to town. I, I grew up in a town in western Tennessee of about 10,000 people. And so every year the fair would happen and the carnies would come to town and of course they had this big pink blown up cotton candy. Every time I saw it, Dad, can I get some cotton candy? He said, it ain't nothing but air. Spend your money on something else. Well, that only made me want it more. <laughs> so eventually through mowing lawns and doing other jobs, because my daddy truly believed that idle mind and idle hands are the devil's workshop. I saved up enough money and I bought my first cotton candy. And I was ecstatic. My life was going to have meaning. <laughs> I was going to experience ultimate truth. And so I yanked off a piece of this, ate it, and I sat there. I don't think I've ever been more disappointed in my life. <laughs> Why? Because it was nothing but air. My dad had already climbed to the mountain, was sitting on the peak of the mountain. I climbed up there and he said, it ain't nothing but air. And I didn't believe him. I was stupid. And I bought it and ate it. That's what idolatry is like for you. It betrays you. It laughs in your face. And it takes away everything in your heart. Now, whew, this may be a two-parter because you're listening too slow. Here's what Luther said. He observed that the Ten Commandments begin with two commandments against idolatry. We just read it. This is because the fundamental problem in law-breaking is always idolatry. In other words, we never break the other commandments without first breaking the first commandment, the law against idolatry. Luther understood that the first commandment is really all about justification by faith. And to fail to believe in justification by faith is idolatry, which is at the root of everything that displeases God. Here's a quote from his treatise on good works. Please listen because it's worth hearing. All those who do not at all times trust God and do not in all their works or sufferings, life and death, trust in his favor, grace, and goodwill, but seek his favor in other things or in themselves, do not keep this first commandment and practice real idolatry. Even if they were to do the works of all the other commandments and in addition had all the prayers, obedience, patience, and chastity of all the saints combined, for the chief work is not present without which all others are nothing more but mere sham, show, and pretense with nothing back of them. 
If we doubt or do not believe that God is gracious to us and is pleased with us, or if we presumptuously expect to please him only through and after our works, then it's all pure deception, outwardly honoring God, but inwardly setting up self as a false savior. We try to justify ourselves, self-justification, through the worship of idols. Now, Luther says the failure to believe that God accepts us fully in Christ and to look to something else for our salvation is a failure to keep the first commandment, namely, having no other gods before him. To try your earn your own salvation through works righteousness is breaking the first commandment. And again, he says, we cannot truly keep any of the other laws unless we keep the first law against idolatry and works righteousness. Thus, beneath any particular sin is this sin, rejecting Christ's salvation and indulging in self-salvation. Now, when I finally understood this, and it really, the penny dropped for me, so to speak, and I, I really got it, at least at one level was, I flashed immediately back to my life, and I remember how often I would confess my sins before God. Not as much as Luther, but I did a pretty good bit of it. Because you can't read the Bible and handle it and teach in it without being exposed. I was exposed. But I had such a shallow view of sin. And it was like I was confessing the same. You ever do that? Confessing the same sin over and over. And you're thinking inside your head and inside your heart, God, you must be absolutely disgusted with me. You must be absolutely ashamed of me. How come I can't stop doing this? Why is it that I do it over and over and over again? Because I didn't understand the sin underneath my sin which is idolatry. I was hacking at the branches, but I never attacked the root. Now, do I sin less now? I don't know. But I know what to repent of now in a far better way. And it's idolatry. I have the struggle. Beneath any particular sin is the sin of rejecting Christ's salvation and indulging in self-salvation. Let's say, for example, since it's that time of the year, you fudge a little on your income tax. Maybe even you downright cheat. Uh, they will catch you, by the way, eventually. But let's say you do that. You, you cheat on your income tax form. Why, why do we do that? Well, you say because you're a sinner. Well, that's true. But why does sin take this particular form? Luther's answer would be that the man only cheated because he was making money and possessions and the status of his comfort from having more of them more important than God and his favor. Or let's say a person is a liar and they lie to their friend rather than lose face or approval over something she or he has done. In that case, the underlying sin is making human approval of your reputation more important than the righteousness you have in Christ. That's why we lie. We like to create our own reality to bolster our what? Righteousness. So we don't tell the truth. That's why we say liar, liar, pants on fire, right? 
It's worse than that. Underneath any particular external form of sin, I guarantee you, is idolatry. Our hearts being moved away uh, from our love and worship and service to our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Luther had a real insight here, and uh, sin isn't only doing bad things. More fundamentally, it's making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin, underneath, primarily, is always idolatry. The reason why I break commandments 2 through 10 is because I break number 1 first. That's why I do it. Now, this definition of sin includes most everyone, does include everyone, but especially speaks well in a postmodern culture that is totally relativist. You'll never get a postmodern person and that is the current cultural milieu we live in. Postmodern just means whatever comes after modernism or modernity. But postmodernism is there's no such thing as absolute truth, and I'm absolutely sure there's no such thing as absolute truth. And therefore, I don't care about God's law. Who says that's God? How do you know he can command people? Uh, you, you got a Bible, they got a Koran, they got, you know, uh, uh, new translation or a book of Mormon or whatever and they all say different things and so who are you to say what the law is but I guarantee if you talk to a postmodern person about the sin, sin underneath the sin it gets them every time because you know one thing postmodern people know they're miserable they're unhappy they're bitter they're hateful and they're arrogant and they know it they know life is not working for me. Now, I don't want to get off track and get into the postmodern alone, but this is an effective way to talk to people about sin. When we define sin and describe it to postmodern people, we must do so in such a way that challenges not only prostitutes, but also Pharisees. Why do we have so much in the New Testament about Jesus addressing the Pharisees and exposing their sin of self-righteousness. Why? Because it helps us understand the gospel, and it's a great act of mercy toward those listening to him. Now, that's point number one. Point number two. Well, let me finish idolatry with one other statement, and then we'll get into something else. In some ways, idolatry is like addiction writ large. It's not physical addiction, but it's spiritual addiction. And let me say it this way. The, the word in the New Testament that is most characteristic and synonymous with the word in the Old Testament idolatry is the word epithumia. The word thumia in Greek means desires or passion. And the word epi means over 
or above. Epithumia is over-desires. Here's where it gets you as a Christian. We want good things. I want my children to be believers. I want to have good family. I want to have a healthy, growing, thriving marriage. I want to, but if you take any of those and you absolutize them and you fall prey to over-desiring them, you destroy yourself and whatever it is you're hoping for. Good things become harmful things when they become epithumia. That word is found in the book of Colossians and Ephesians 2 where it talks about putting to death over desires, good things. Maybe your political party. Maybe your form of government. Maybe your views of the economy. Maybe your understanding of philosophy over desires. And by the way, we're idolaters and we have in American culture our own temples and cathedrals. You know what the number one temple and cathedral for an idolater is? Amazon. (laughs) Buy with one click. Immediate gratification. The only thing they're lacking is putting it in your hand immediately. Shopping malls, shopping centers. Now let me get closer to my heart. Stadiums, arenas, those are all good things. But when they cause me to disobey what I know God wants of me, then they become bad things. Gyms, Y-M-C-A or W-C-A. I don't even know if they have that anymore. With all the transgender stuff going on, they just call it the Y. So we have everything. Universities can become temples and cathedrals for our idolatries. Let me see if I got them all on the movie theater. Those are where idolaters go and feed their addictions to good things that they want. And when you do that, you become not a nice person. That's all I'll say. You become a difficult person. So how do we identify our idols? Well, there are lots of different ways. There's one way positive and one way negative. But let me hit the positive way. These are examples of idol-based life lies. Power idolatry. Life only has meaning, and I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. Approval idolatry. Life can only have meaning, and I only have worth if I am loved and respected by, you fill in the blank. There's only about 200 more. 
comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience and a particular quality of life. Image idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have a particular kind of look and body image. Control idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth. I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of Helping idolatry, life only has meaning. I only have worth of people dependent on me and need me. I'm a Messiah. Independence idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm completely free from obligation or responsibilities to take care of anyone but myself. Work idolatry. Only if I'm highly productive and getting a lot done. Achievement idolatry, materialism idolatry, even religion idolatry. I only have meaning, I only have worth if I'm adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activities. You can have people, you can have racial cultural, you can have family, you can have suffering idolatry, you can even have ideology idolatry. But those are the types that we can have. Now, another way that we can unmask idols in our lives and identify them is through negative emotions. Now, I know you don't have any of these. Because you just look at you. You're all happy. Nobody here is angry. Nobody's depressed. Nobody here has turned me off 25 minutes ago. No. If you are angry, ask, is there something too important to me, something I'm telling myself I have to have? Is this why I'm angry? Because I'm being blocked from having something I think is a necessity when it's not. If you're fearful or badly worried, ask, is there something too important to me, something I'm telling myself I have to have? Is this why I'm so scared because something is being threatened, which I think is necessary when it's not? Or if you're despondent or filled with self-hatred, loathing yourself, is there something too important to me, something I'm telling myself I have to have? Why am I so down because I've lost or failed at something which I think is necessary when it's not? What is my greatest nightmare? What worries me? What do I wake up at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and can't go back to sleep, what's the where does my mind go? When I'm alone, what's the first thing my mind fantasizes about? What is it I fear? What is it I'm angry about? What am I bitter about? Bitterness is being filled with resentment because you think there's something you were supposed to get, something you're entitled to, something we ought to have, and you didn't get it. And you look around at other people and they have it. And they're no better than you. Some of them aren't as good as you, you think. So, what if I failed or lost it? What would cause me to feel that I didn't even want to live? What do I rely on or comfort myself with when things go bad or get difficult? What do I think most easily about? Where does my mind go? What preoccupies me? What prayer unanswered would make me seriously think about turning away from God? Lord, if you don't answer this prayer this way, I'm done. I'm leaving. I'm walking away. What makes me feel the most self-worth? Well, you get the picture, I hope. 
because I can't even stand to say any more of it. But we learn to unmask our idols in the uh, following way. We say to ourselves, Lord, it's good to have you, but there's this other thing that I must have. This thing or this life is not happy or meaningful. If I can't have it, I will despair. You are not enough. I need this too as a requirement for being fulfilled. In fact, if you would take it from me, I'd turn my back on you in a New York minute, for you are negotiable. But this is not. This is the real God of my life. This is the real goal of my life. And if you are useful to me in achieving it, or not useful to me in achieving it, I might turn on you. I guarantee you that's why people stop coming to church. Now, they'll say it this way. That person back there, or that person right there, or that person over there looked at me funny, and it offended me. Or that pastor said something, it's like he's reading my mail, and it's none of his business. Or, but I'll tell you what, more than likely, it's because God's not measuring up to what we want to use him for. Jonathan Edwards says, you don't even begin to understand loving God until you understand the difference between loving God for what he'll do for you and give you and loving God for being God. How do we deal with idolatry? Well, of course we repent. We have to repent of our idolatries. The old Puritans called it repentance and mortification. And hopefully after vivification or aspiration, that's what they called it. The acts of repentance and mortification involve the following. We examine ourselves. We not only repent of sin generally, we do it specifically. That is, we look at it and look underneath our external actions and understand why we did what we did, what was driving us. We identify idols of the heart which underlie specific behaviors. Now, I don't encourage anybody to go on an idol hunt. Instead, occasions of sin offer opportunities to examine and reflect on the specific cravings or inordinate desires that rule the heart. For instance, an outburst of anger could have arisen because you demanded the peace of not being interrupted, because you demand that things go smoothly, because you demanded respect. Consider the horror of your sin. We must come to see that the ugliness of our sin and ruling desires is real. Repentance is not a wringing of the hands or a hanging of the head, but a working of the heart until the sin becomes odious to us more than any consequence could be. We must strive to see the guilt of our sin, that Christ was put to death for it. Do not dare say it's not so bad. The danger of our sin, if you deal with them, you will become hardened in them, you will become nearly impossible to change, and they will bring ruin into your life. And the evil of the sin, sin grieves the Holy Spirit, foils the love of Christ, and Jesus, as it were, and I get this from John Owen, is wounded afresh by our sin. Owen continues, 
He suggests that we look to him whom we have pierced and be in bitterness and say to your soul, what have I done? What love, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this return I make to the Father for his love, to the Son, for his shed blood, to the Holy Spirit, for his grace? Is this how I require the Lord? Have I defiled the heart Christ died to wash and the blessed Spirit has chosen to dwell in? What then can I say to my dear Lord? Do I account communion with him of so little value? I have despised love, mercy, goodness, peace, joy. I have despised them all. Then we have to put them to death. Now, since we're out of time, I'll tell you how to do that. The preceding paragraph tells you how to do it. The only thing that will stop me or enable me to repent is to be softened or overcome by the love of Jesus Christ for me. And when I begin to think of the way he loves me, even though I am a serial idolater, and I repent of it, that love changes me, makes me want him, makes me want to recenter my heart upon him. How about you? Do you see idolatry in your heart? Are you willing to expose it and deal with it by taking it to Christ and talking with him about it and seeing him go before the Father as your defense? You know, Jesus doesn't go before the Father, 1 John tells us this. He doesn't go before the Father and plead for mercy for us. He pleads for justice for us. You know why? Because Jesus' death on the cross justly dealt the death blow to the accusing power of our sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So Jesus, as our defense attorney, pleads justice and we're forgiven and we're washed clean whiter than snow how about you let's pray heavenly father we thank you so much for what we've heard today it's been painful in ways but in other ways enlightening and i pray that you will draw a circle around our hearts and draw us to yourself and in your mercy and grace, never let us escape the sin underneath our sins. Father, we pray now as we continue to worship you that we will give as those who are celebrating your grace, mercy, goodness, and love. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.